Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So at the very least, I th- we have to look at both principle and practice to kind of figure out what it was uh, the founders intended. And as to the Louisiana Purchase, the question is, did Jefferson abandon his principles to acquire that new territory? That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jet Connor talking about Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, and the Louisiana Purchase. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Jet Connor discussing the unique relationship between Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, and really how the Louisiana Purchase could have came between them, but didn't. We're going to talk about two major thinkers, major figures of the Revolutionary Era, the Founding Era, and the years after. Thomas Paine, obviously, uh, one of the great early thinkers of the movement, and Thomas Jefferson, again, right on par with him. They were politically aligned in a lot of their views. And as the uh, early Republic moved on, we saw a lot of relationships fracture. Payne and Jefferson really didn't. And one of the things they both agreed on that held them close together was this idea, this notion of a limited executive. Uh, That is to say, a presidential Uh, interpretation of power that was very unintentionally weak. Presidents weren't supposed to be kings. Uh, Presidents weren't supposed to have these unchecked powers uh, that went far beyond the vision of the Republic as it was conceived. And they really agreed on that. Early on, they were called anti-federalists. Of course, they would go on to be Democratic Republicans, for which Jefferson would eventually be the leader of the movement and president of the United States. Uh, And when Jefferson is elected, again, when we look at the victories of his first term in office, uh, everyone goes immediately to uh, the Louisiana Purchase, which Dr. Connor will talk about tonight. But here, when you look at the Louisiana Purchase, you see uh, one of the things I like the least about our political system, the rampant hypocrisy of it all. So here's Thomas Paine, of course, and Thomas Jefferson, who their whole lives have railed against a president with too much power. Uh, And then the Louisiana Purchase comes up. Jefferson signs the deal, even though nothing in the Constitution allows for that. And it seems to be if a Federalist president had done that, would have been the end of the world to them. But they both understand the great significance of uh, acquiring that 828,800 Uh, square miles of land, uh, and the rest is history. It's a perfect example uh, of how you have people with very strong convictions uh, when the other party is in office 
whose principles maybe dissipate when their party is in charge. Hey, it's politics, right? So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jack Connor. Jack Connor, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. Tell us about your background. So I grew up in uh, rural Texas. You may still detect a bit of a twang there. And uh, even though I've lived in uh, Colorado now for 50 years, uh, that still gets preserved a tiny bit. I, uh, I have a long career in higher education. And uh, so I'm now retired, um, but um, continuing to stay somewhat active uh, here and there by doing a little bit of writing. Um, all of my degrees, uh, BA, MA, and PhD are in political science. And uh, my PhD is from University of Colorado Boulder, and the concentration was political philosophy. So um, I have been a political science professor and university administrator uh, at Metropolitan State College, or actually today at a university, Metropolitan State University of Denver. And uh, I've also been a senior policy analyst for Colorado Department of Higher Education in um, academic affairs area. And then finally, in the summer of 1977, I was uh, fortunate enough to get a National Endowment for the Humanities Summer Fellowship at Princeton, and uh, I chose Thomas Paine as a topic to work on while I was there that summer, and that's what began my uh, adventure with Paine. And I've been writing about him ever since and uh, have written several J.A.R. articles and have completed a couple of books. What first drew your interest into this topic? So, um, you know, you do research and you begin to write about something and then you discover a side road and, uh, and out of the peripheral vision and you kind of take a look up that road and realize there's something up there. And uh, that's what happened when I was doing research for my recent book on John Adams and Thomas Paine, um, Rival Plans for the Early Republic. That's a Westholm publication for J.A.R. And... Uh, in that research, I uh, was looking primarily at uh, John Adams and Thomas Paine's views on executive power. Um, and at that point, I became interested in Jefferson's in, as well. That was the side road. And um, so I decided afterwards to investigate him and how he fit into the picture of the discussion that I'd had um, about the other two on executive power. So uh, in Paris at the time, uh, Jefferson, um, during the drafting of the Constitutional Convention, he was not there, he was in Paris, um, he objected to the strong executive model that was drafted in the original Constitution. And uh, so I thought it is interesting then, knowing as a political scientist that he had taken some unprecedented actions as president much later on and uh, kind of made me wonder, all right, well, what is the convergence here between um, principle and practice? So that's what got me uh, interested in 
taking a look at Jefferson and in the context then Payne as well, since the two of them um, have often been set together because of their principles of democratic republics, equality, uh, freedom, and other issues. What kind of relationship did Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine have in the early revolutionary era? Do we know how they met? Do we know how they interacted? Yeah. You know, I don't really know how they met. It's really kind of funny. It's one of the few things that's uh, not entirely clear. Um, My guess is they met in Paris in around 1788, well after the American Revolutionary period. Um, But the odd thing is they were both in Philadelphia during the drafting of the Declaration. Uh, Payne had already called in common sense for a manifesto of independence. And uh, Jefferson took it and uh, drafted it for the Continental Congress. Uh, By the way, there are some historians who think Payne had a direct role in uh, the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, but there's really no evidence at all to, uh, to back that up. But I don't know whether or not they met in Philadelphia. It was kind of hard to imagine that they wouldn't. Payne did meet with John Adams while he was there. Um, but there's just no record of that. And if one looks at the correspondence that does exist uh, between Payne and Jefferson, it doesn't begin until the 1788 period around in there. So um, I'm not sure the two knew each other at that particular point in time. Um, But um, in any case, uh, they, when they started their conversation, they started uh, talking about, of an invention of pain uh, for an iron bridge. And he was in Europe in 1788 trying to push his iron bridge invention and see if any country would be willing to build it. And, uh, and so the two of them started talking right off uh, in direct correspondence, at least based on what we know about the current um, beginning of their letters, uh, about inventions, not so much about principles of revolution. So, but fair to say, Jefferson was highly influenced by Payne's political writings during the revolutionary period, and he said so. Um, he wrote uh, much year, uh, many years later that he tried to capture the, quote, common sense of the issues in drafting the uh, declaration and uh, using simple terms. And of Payne, Jefferson simply said, no writer has exceeded pain in ease and familiarity of style and in simple and unassuming language. That's pretty good praise from the highly educated Jefferson of someone who was a new immigrant and who made it only through about uh, what we would consider our middle school for an education. Your article begins in a rather dramatic way, sort of a cinematic way, when Jefferson will receive a letter from an associate of Thomas Paine upon Paine's death. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. So Paine spent quite a bit of time in France after he left the United States uh, right before the Constitutional Convention. And he shuttled back and forth between Great Britain and France uh, during that time. And in that time, he wrote... uh, his famous track, The Rights of Man, in two volumes. And mostly uh, that was about the French Revolution. He was responding to Edmund Burke, 
who uh, thought the French Revolution was a disaster and Paine praised the French Revolution and uh, wrote this book in uh, response to Burke. Um, he got in trouble doing that, by the way, with the British and had to finally leave the country. They had an arrest warrant for his uh, or a warrant for his arrest uh, for, in effect, uh, seditious writings. And uh, so he wound up in France and he got caught up in the French Revolution and he got uh, elected as a deputy to the National Convention. And he uh, um, at some point he gets crosswise with Robespierre during the Reign of Terror and he winds up in prison. And Payne thought he was going to the guillotine like everyone else. But by a fluke, uh, an accident that happened actually that did not mark his door properly one morning, uh, he escaped. Um, the guillotine. So all of that to say that he then uh, eventually uh, stayed with a family in France named Bonneville. And uh, it was Marguerite Bonneville, the uh, person identified in the article, who finally, uh, after coming to America, uh, petitions Jefferson to see whether or not she could publish his uh, letters between the two. Uh, because Marguerite had inherited Payne's estate, most of it, and all of his papers. And uh, so Payne had sponsored the family to come to the United States. Um, Marguerite and her two boys, one named Benjamin, of Benjamin Bonneville, that's of the Salt Flats fame today, and uh, another boy named Thomas, who was Payne's godson. Um, the father, Nicholas, stayed behind because he was having trouble in France with Napoleon, and he didn't want to leave the country, fearing that he might lose his business. So anyway, Madame Bonneville served as Payne's caretaker in his later years of his life. And uh, when he dies, he uh, she inherits his estate. So she's got these letters, and she's got other papers of Payne, and so she approaches Jefferson. Um, to see if she can publish them. And he declines. He basically says, uh, I do not wish to disturb my tranquility <laughs> in his uh, post-presidential retirement. And uh, he simply didn't want to stir things back up with primarily the Federalist Party and critics of both he and, or both him and Payne. So that was the uh, background of Jefferson's um, you know, involvement with this particular issue of uh, Payne's letters. You write a lot in your article about Jefferson's love or maybe even an infatuation with the American West. Uh, what was that ideal relationship like? Yes. Um, in many ways, Jefferson saw the American West as the future of America. Um but if you know, some of the bitterest controversies in post-revolutionary America involved expanding into the American uh, Western frontier. Now, there is an example of uh, the new lands and who was to uh, who they belonged to. There was the question of slavery and whether or not it would be uh, extended in case there were new lands. Um, Jefferson at one point, way back at the um, around 1784 proposed um, for the Northwest Territories, that would be territories today, the old Northwest Territories around the Great Lakes, north of the Ohio River. Um, 
he proposed at that time that there be a creation of new territory that would allow the creation of 10 new states. He gave them some odd names, mix of Latin and Indian names, and uh, proposed that none of those new states would, for example, be allowed to have slavery. Um, None of that came about. That didn't happen, although that idea eventually morphed into the Northwest Ordinance during around the time of the Constitutional Convention. Um, As for Payne, he played a role by writing a pamphlet in 1780 called Public Good, in which he advocated that states like Virginia, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, all of whom claimed Western territories all the way to the Mississippi by their colonial uh, authorizations, that those instead, those claims be forfeited and given to the United States government instead, and for the purpose of creating new states. So the two saw somewhat alike about the idea of expanding the United States into the American West. And uh, they did it for several reasons. Uh, it would make the nation more self-sufficient. It would be uh, you know, much more important for the nation trying to build itself as an independent power in world affairs. And, um, and so they had their uh, ideas that um, you know, the American frontier was critical um, in this context. Um, to uh, America's growth. And besides which, anyone visiting Monticello today and walking in that first entry room will see artifacts and fossils and all kinds of things associated with the American West at Monticello. So Jefferson had a fascination with it. There's just no question about it. Um, Joseph Ellis, the historian, basically remarked that Jefferson was, in fact, a Westerner, if not in fact actually one, you know. So that was his spirit, and that was his attitude. How does Thomas Paine perceive the power of the presidency? He abhorred unbridled executive power. Uh, he had written common sense to blast the King of England. Um, common sense basically targeted the king almost exclusively and uh, blamed the king for all of the problems that America uh, and, you know, the colonies in America were having with Great Britain. That was a shift of gears. Up until that uh, publication, the arguments primarily over the conflict with the colonies and Great Britain had to do with uh, parliament and representation and taxes and those things. Uh, Payne hauled off and just simply blamed the king for all of the problems. It's interesting that Jefferson picked that idea up in the Declaration of Independence because once you get beyond the opening lines, those eloquent opening lines of Jefferson about life, liberty, and property and so forth, you get into a long list of grievances against Britain and it's all aimed directly at the king, no one else. Parliament's hardly mentioned. So um, the two thought alike about the presidency. They thought unbridled presidential power was something that uh, needed to be avoided, in effect. And they were critical later on of the Federalist concept of an energetic executive, which had been articulated by Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers. Um, So 
in, for example, in Paine's early conceptions of executive power, he proposed a national constitution for America in common sense that did not separate the executive from the legislative. Um, he based his proposal for a single house Congress with a rotating executive from the colonies for, you know, just administrative purposes, but it would not be a separate, you know, executive power. And um, it would be chosen by the legislature and accountable to it. Um, but if, but once the Constitutional Convention was over in 1787, Payne uh, accepted uh, the constitutional scheme of executive authority and moved on. We know this story uh, in American history circles, very big moment in the history of the Republic, but could you give us a quick refresher on how the Louisiana Purchase comes to pass? Well, you know, the simple answer is it fell into his uh, lap. Um, he had been he had his eye on Louisiana for quite some time. Um, at the end of the French Indian War, um, Spain had acquired uh, Louisiana uh, from the French, and uh, the uh, fear that Jeff Jefferson had was what would happen to as America expanded, uh, what would happen to <clears throat> trade particularly in the New Orleans area, uh, you know, in the Mississippi River. Um, and so he was very concerned about that. Um, so in his presidency, and he gets to, you know, the presidency in 1800, and at some point early in the presidency, he realizes that um, the Louisiana uh, territory um, might be something that he needs to make a move on. And it happens that um, Spain ceded um, the territory back to the French. And even though Jefferson was a Francophile for his entire life and did, uh, didn't like the English at all, uh, this really worried him because he could see the French all of a sudden clamping down um, on New Orleans and the port and stopping uh, shipping on the Mississippi. So he sent Robert Livingston, an envoy, to France to offer to buy New Orleans and the West Florida coast, simply to have access to the Mississippi. In the meantime, Spain, which still hadn't quite finished ceding the territory to France, simply shut down the uh, port, and that alarmed Jefferson. <clears throat> But as the story is pretty well known, when um, Livingston gets over to France and then is joined by James Monroe, because James Monroe uh, was a very close friend of Jefferson's. He was a Virginian, and Jefferson wanted two people there. They both stumble into the situation that Napoleon just offers to sell the whole thing, the entire Louisiana Territory. Uh, he had failed to put down Napoleon, a slave rebellion in Santa Domingo, uh, today's uh, the Dominican Republic area, and uh, it cost many French lives, and uh, he had given up, he abandoned his hope for the time being of expanding French colonialism in America, so he turned his attention to Europe, and he needed money. And so Livingston and Monroe um, jumped at the chance. They were authorized only um, to spend about $2 million in terms of their offer. Now the price tag for the entire territory grew to $15 million. Uh, but they saw that as a bargain that just could not uh, be passed up. Jefferson agreed, 
and he decided he would have to deal with Congress after the fact because he had to jump on it and do it now. So he, in somewhat of an unprecedented way, um, you know, got that agreement signed, and that's how he acquired uh, Louisiana from the French. What was Payne's reaction to the Louisiana Purchase? Uh, at face value, uh, it is sort of the most egregious abuse of executive authority yet seen in the in the New Republic, something he had spent a lot of time railing against. Um, how did he justify such a wide application of executive power? Yeah, it's kind of surprising. He backed the deal immediately. In fact, he, when he um, came back to America from Europe after about a 15-year hiatus, um, at the invitation, by the way, of Jefferson, who offered to send a ship to pick him up, uh, he came on a private ship. But nonetheless, when he arrived in 1802, he suggested to Jefferson, not knowing anything about what was happening, uh, that he purchase Louisiana because Payne knew what Napoleon was going through. And Payne was surprised, and he was a bit disappointed, actually, uh, thinking the idea was his own, to learn from Jefferson the next day after he proposed it um, in December of 1802 that measures were already taken in that business, said Jefferson. So that surprised Payne. He didn't know it. It also said to Payne very clearly that as close as they were in friendship, uh, he was out of the loop, Payne, from what was really going on in the national government at the time. But in the end, he immediately started to build a rationale for Jefferson to use in order to justify his executive action to acquire Louisiana, because both knew uh, this was new territory in terms of exercising presidential power. Uh, the Federalist Party, by the way, bitterly opposed the way Jefferson went about purchasing Louisiana without congressional approval or consulting them. They had, in fact, particularly Hamilton, had advocated just taking the territory by force and being done with it. But uh, Jefferson chose the method that he did, and in the end, uh, he took his action. So how does Payne justify this? Well, he built a clever argument that Jefferson's purchase was not really done by treaty. And if that was the case, then the Senate really did not need to approve. And so he argued um, that treaties are external and must be maintained by all parties involved. Since this purchase was an agreement between the United States and France, he said, it wasn't really a treaty because once the purchase was over, France had nothing to do with it any longer. From then on, in effect, it was the responsibility of the United States alone. But his argument, even though it was clever uh, and supportive, was not really needed because in the final analysis, Congress did approve of Jefferson's uh, purchase after the fact, and it authorized the additional monies to pay for it. Do you believe Jefferson understood exactly how important the Louisiana Purchase would be, not just for him, but for the future of the country to achieving his goals? Yeah, I think he did. Um, as far back as 1784, Jefferson proposed those ideas for the old Northwest Territory, so he already had his eye on uh, what would happen uh, in those territories. And uh, he 
for some reason, knew that somehow America's future was just intimately tied up with its, its expansion of its territory. And there were some other reasons. I mean, besides the fact that Ellis would say he was a Westerner at heart, and there's plenty of evidence for that, although he never did go to the West, never did see it himself, um, it represented Jefferson's idyllic vision of an agrarian nation. I mean, it was in the West where there was boundless opportunities, not on the old eastern seaboard where already we were moving toward an urban environment of manufacturing, banking, all those things that Jefferson didn't have much uh, uh, you know, interest in. And, uh, but he saw the West as sort of America's fountain of youth, said Joseph Ellis. It was an area of great potential. And it furthermore politically didn't hurt that Jefferson instinctively understood that Westerners would be more Republican than Federalist. So for him, the West matched his Republican principles, and he took almost personal charge, by the way, even marginalizing his Secretary of State, James Madison, by overseeing the purchase himself. Um, the West was his uh, America's future, he thought, and his legacy would be tied to that achievement. Didn't hurt that, of course, by the purchase that the United States overnight doubled its size by two times. So... Uh, and it would not, by the way, be the only time that a president pushed his secretary of state out and took personal charge of things in order to accomplish his own goals. But that, as we know, is another story. How does this story help us understand the revolutionary era better? So I think it illustrates the conflict that sometimes arises between principles and practice. In other words, if we look at the founders in this case, uh, between what they wrote and what they did. And um, I think that requires us to reflect on both. And sometimes um, it may be that as a result of that reflection, we see a shift in principles. So for example, historian Gordon Wood wrote several times about the so-called Madison problem. Originally, uh, James Madison, a proponent for a strong national government at the Constitutional Convention, um, even before the convention, he wrote that the Constitutional uh, before the convention, he wrote that the states ought to be subject to congressional authority in all cases whatsoever. I mean, he was a strong nationalist at that time. He was a strong nationalist at the Constitutional Convention, uh, but he evolved and uh, became Jefferson Secretary of State and became a Jefferson uh, Republican and a proponent on top of that of states' rights. So something flipped there. Something changed. Uh, Reams had been written, you know, debating whether Madison stayed true to his original founding principles or changed them. So at the very least, I think it, in that illustration, we have to look at both principle and practice to kind of figure out what it was uh, the founders intended. And as to the Louisiana Purchase, the question is, did Jefferson abandon his principles to acquire that new territory? Again, argue, uh, Ellis argues that Jefferson did not stray from his principles a whole lot during his administration, but I think everybody understands that how he handled the Louisiana Purchase was a stretch, and Jefferson himself knew it. He wrote a letter uh, to a colleague saying he understood that what he was undertaking was probably unconstitutional, but he simply could not un 
Uh, he simply could not pass this opportunity up. It was good for the nation. And uh, so, yeah. So it bothered him to think he was stretching the Constitution in the face of an unprecedented opportunity. And the fact that it bothered him uh, tells us that, you know, these founders, certainly Jefferson, these founders still had plenty of reason to look at the Constitution as a limiting authority of executive power. So at least with some, you know, some revolutionary era things to think about, um, and particularly in the case of Jefferson and Payne, in order to judge their legacy, uh, we've got to appraise both their principles and their actions. And there are suggestions with the Louisiana Purchase in particular that those things were tested, and there are some suggestions that they shifted a little bit. Um, both in their own way, found a way to accommodate that executive power that they were so wary of. And they thought that maybe the purpose superseded um, any of those actions and therefore justified it. But um, I think that is uh, the question that is left for us to consider. And that simply is... um, What do we do when principle and practice come into conflict? Jack Connor, thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you very much for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying... So long.